your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6, our passage today will be verses 1 through 15. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. We are doing a brief series through some of the miracles we find, some of the signs we find in John's Gospel last week, the water into wine this week, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And that will be our focus for our time together this morning. If you found your way there, I encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 15, these inspired words the Lord has given us by his Holy Spirit. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take Come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. And Lord, as we understand our need of it, and we rely upon your Holy Spirit this morning, would you teach us? Would you transform us? Would you help us to not only just understand a meaning of a passage, but Lord, that this passage would take deep roots in our hearts and bring about transformation in a way that would please you. So Lord, we ask now that you would come and help us as we walk our way through this text and that you would instruct us by it for your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever, have you ever thought of how hard it is for us to be truly satisfied? The news media and the marketing firms even feed right into it. Think about it. Our political leaders never do enough. Our house is either too small or too big or not convenient. Our job is not cutting it. If we only had this or if we only had that, we even apply that to ministry sometimes, don't we? If the church would only do this, or if this ministry would only be more engaged in that. 
We are always left wanting something more. And that's often the way we roll. That longing of our hearts to be fed continually by news feeds and social media platforms only resulting in more and more longing. What is it that will truly satisfy our hearts? I like what Philip Holmes, faculty member at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi wrote. He said, we were designed for more than trivial pursuits of pleasure. The hard truth is that we will never find relief if we seek it through possessions or through people. Seeking satisfaction in the things of the world is like chasing the wind. Once you're finally exhausted and weary from your pursuit, you're left empty-handed and disappointed. He writes, the problem is our hearts are black holes of discontentment, devouring relationships and possessions, all while screaming, I need more. We're always eating, but famished, always drinking, but never satisfied. I think what he says there is true. It's the unfortunate state of many of our hearts today, always eating, but famished, always drinking, but never satisfied. So what then is the solution? What can truly satisfy our longing hearts, souls? Well, it's not so much a what as it is a who. And the feeding of the 5,000 here in John chapter 6, this miraculous sign, this miraculous work helps us see that Jesus is the true source of satisfaction. That he is the one who supplies all we need. And that we can find such satisfaction in him. This story, this miracle is the only miracle that we have recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's yet another miraculous sign to help us see that Jesus himself is the one who gives us himself for our needy hearts. And by this sign, he demonstrates that. He demonstrates that he is the satisfying supply of our souls. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see that unfold in several ways. How Jesus shows, how he demonstrates his sufficiency. How we must find our longing hearts satisfied, not in the things of this world, but in him. Let's walk through this passage and see it, how Jesus demonstrates that through this miracle, through this sign. First of all, we see this. We see that Jesus demonstrates his sufficiency by the context that he places this miracle in. Context clues here are important just like they would be in any other passage. In verses one through four, we see that Jesus has traveled across the Sea of Galilee for a bit of a retreat. 
He's hoping to find a, a place where he can go and kind of get away from the crowds. Remember, the crowds have been following him. Now he's wanting a little bit of a break. He goes across the Sea of Galilee and he looks for this retreat. Luke tells us in his gospel that where they go is a town called Bethsaida. And the crowds follow him there. We're told here in the passage that, uh, that the crowds continued following him in verse 2 because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So you have this massive following. Jesus tries to escape for some rest and the crowds go right after him. Why? Because they saw him doing signs, miracles. They likely see Jesus as, the, as an opportunity. Like if he can do these miraculous things, he can likely deliver us even from the oppression of Rome. He's the one to come and, and bring hope, perhaps. He makes it to the other side of the sea. The crowds soon follow. We're told here in the passage that in verse 3, he goes up on the mountain and sits down with his disciples. And then in verse 4, we're told a very important observation. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This time marker is an important one. In fact, there are three Passovers that are observed throughout John's Gospel, This, or mentioned in John's Gospel. This is the second one that's mentioned. And as we know, Passover was really a, a time of major national celebration for the Jewish people. It was one of the biggest moments of their, their year, and it was this annual festival so that the people of God could remember, look back to the Passover we find in the book of Exodus, when the Lord delivered his people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. The Passover was to mark, to commemorate that night when that final miracle took place in Egypt, therefore resulting in the deliverance of God's people. This Exodus event recorded throughout the book of Exodus, starting there with that Passover, marked by various miraculous signs with that final sign of the Passover found in Exodus chapter 12, when God would pass through Egypt in judgment, striking down every firstborn of the Egyptians. But the Lord gave a way for his people to escape that judgment. They were to take a lamb and slaughter it, put some of its blood over the door, and all who did this would be spared from judgment. So this Passover became this Massive national celebration where the people would look back to that deliverance. God brought them out of Egypt miraculously. We know that that's exactly the story that unfolds throughout the book of Exodus. We know that eventually the people are led out of the bondage of Egypt through the wilderness over a period of years and finally able to dwell within the promised land. We know that Old Testament records much of their activity in the promised land and eventually they would be taken captive again because of their disobedience. They would be taken captive into exile. But it was during the time of exile that the Lord promised a new rescue, which would come in the form of what we would call a new exodus under a new leader, not Moses this time, but a new leader. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 references this 
In verse 15 of Isaiah 11, the prophet says, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead his people across in sandals. And there will be a new highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when he came up from the land of Egypt. So this, this reference, this language of a new exodus, we see it certainly as the exiles return, but then it's pointing even beyond that to another, another exodus of sorts. So brothers and sisters, it's no accident that this miracle that's about to unfold in the feeding of the 5,000 happens during Passover. John 6 verse 4 is not an irrelevant time marker. It is very critical to understanding what is happening here through the life and ministry of Jesus. This new exodus is unfolding before their very eyes. After this miracle, Jesus points back to the time of the exodus. Later on in the passage, we're not going to not our focus necessarily today, but if you were to keep reading in John 6 in verses 22 through 36, he points back to the time of Exodus as he addresses the crowds and he claims to be the bread of life. You see that particularly there in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We know that following the Passover event in the Old Testament, that the people of God were led out by Moses, where the Lord provided for them daily food rations. Manna from heaven were given to the people. And so as Jesus now addresses the crowd, and he, as he begins this time of multiplying the loaves and the fish, you'll see here, he's announcing, ultimately, by this time marker, the Passover was at hand. He's, he's, he's in essence, announcing that he is the bread of life, that he is the one who's come to rescue the people. The miracle is a sign that points to Jesus as the greater and better Moses, whom the Lord provided for them as their daily portion, the bread of life. So he's announcing himself to be that bread as you continue to read the passage. He's the Passover lamb. We know that is true. It was sacrificed, but he's also God's true manna sent from heaven to supply our greatest needs. So you have a very deliberate context being set. Jesus is setting the stage to explain that his arrival into this world is an arrival to bring about a new exodus of sorts, the deliverance of his people. He's showing that he is the one who is sufficient to supply that need. But not only does he show his sufficiency through setting this context, he shows, number two, his sufficiency by demonstrating by demonstrating it through testing of his disciples. And you see that in verses 5 through 10. Jesus sees the large, large crowd heading their way, and because of his compassion, which we'll point to a bit later, he asked Philip where they could find enough bread so all the people could eat. Later we learn that John says, 
There were some men, there were some 5,000 men. And if women and children would have been counted as well, it could have been upwards to some 20,000 people there that day. We're here told that John, or excuse me, that Jesus asked Philip in verse 5, particularly where they could find food. Now that's interesting because why did he ask Philip? Why, why, why was he the one singled out? Well, if you go to John chapter 12, verse 21, we know that Philip was from this town, Bethsaida. That's where he grew up. He would have known where the shortest Chick-fil-A line would have been, right? He, he knew the area. He knew where to find resources. And Jesus asked him about that. But we're told more specifically here in the passage that he asked Philip directly because he was testing him. Philip responds, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. It's almost the equivalent of eight months' wages. He looks at the problem at hand, and he can only think about the limited resources and the significant need that was unfolding as this massive throng of people come their way. But then later, Andrew speaks up in verse 8, Peter's brother. And Andrew says, well, there is a boy here who has some food, five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? I mean, he's got a little bit of food, but that's not, that's not even a drop in the bucket. By the way, it's not as if Andrew was outdoing Philip here. Neither of them are looking to the one who has capacity to meet the need. They only see the significance of the problem and immediately conclude there's nothing that can be done. What we see here is that sometimes, especially through Philip's example, Jesus will test us with circumstances that seem impossible to reveal the genuineness of our faith and whether or not we are trusting him as our sole source of sufficiency. All Philip can see is the vast need. It's not occurring to him at this moment that Jesus is the one that can meet that need. They only see the magnitude of the problem and the inadequate resources to meet it. For Philip, it's a money shortage. They don't have enough money. For Andrew, it's a resource shortage. We've only got this little bit of food. Neither of them looking to Jesus saying, we've seen you do miracles. We've already seen you heal people and turn water into wine. We've, we've experienced firsthand, Jesus. You do miraculous things. They're not at one moment in this text are they saying, we don't have any resources, but we know you can do something special, Jesus. That's not their response. Jesus tests them. You know, church, as you think about the example of Philip and Andrew here, Philip being focused on money, Andrew being focused on limited resources, I think that the temptation for us, even today, can be the same. We often will be presented with challenges and forget that Jesus is right there to meet the need. Again, these same disciples had seen him perform miracles already. 
but they're not looking to Jesus. They're not finding him as the one who's sufficient to do what needs to be done in that moment. Brothers and sisters, trusting Jesus, finding Jesus as our sufficiency, trusting in him to meet our most basic and extreme needs even, should be our most immediate reflex. And yet how oftentimes when we are facing circumstances, even overwhelming circumstances, we're counting the dollars. I'm not saying that that's unwise, we should. We're looking at what we can do, what we can provide, and not looking to Christ, who is sovereign over all. Do we look at a problem and react by thinking or saying, I just don't know what I'm going to do? Or do we say, I just don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to trust in the one who can do all things? Jesus is showing us from this passage that he is the one with unlimited resources. Now, to be clear, lest you misunderstand me, that doesn't mean that Jesus is obligated so long as we ask him to give us everything we want. He's not a genie in a lamp here to meet your every call of every desire that you have even good ones. Doesn't mean that he will always give us what we desire or that he's obligated to perform miraculous things for us. But it does show us the tendency, I think, through Philip and Andrew specifically, that we all have to be overcome by our circumstances and not look to Jesus as the one who can give us all we need and more. Jesus is sufficient. He tests the disciples here. He tests Philip here in a unique way to expose the the lack of faith in Philip's heart to trust how sufficient Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, how often we reflect the same. And a third way that Jesus demonstrates this is through the miracle itself, through the provision that he gives. The actual miracle, the actual sign is recorded for us in verses 11 through 15. Philip and Andrew have responded, (laughs) Jesus, there's a lot of them. Uh, We have no money and no resources. But Jesus has the disciples to sit the people down. We're told here that the men numbered 5,000. Again, likely identifying the households and reflecting the patriarchy of the times. There were likely many, many more, including women and children. We're told here that there was lots of grass indicating a springtime context, which, again, the Passover would have come in. And so we end up with this massive picnic of sorts, gigantic scene of all of these people sitting out on the grass, being paired up in groups, Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, we're told. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus takes these 
five loaves and two fish and distributes to thousands of people as much as they wanted. The disciples were instructed after that to gather up leftovers, and they did, resulting in 12 baskets full of leftovers. See that in verse 12, 13. This miracle, I think, shows us several things about Jesus, why he should be trusted in as our sufficiency. Several things we see about Jesus and his provision. Number one, he is a compassionate provider. In Matthew and Mark's accounts, we're specifically told that when Jesus looks out upon the crowd, it's a bit implied here in John's account, just as he sees them coming and then begins to ask the question, how are we going to feed them? But in Matthew and Mark's account, we're told when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion. This is a great example of the care and the grace Jesus willingly extends to people. Even those, many of them, who will not end up following him. He sees them with compassion. Red Anglican J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said he saw a great company in a desert place ready to faint for hunger. He knew that many in the company had no true faith and love towards him. They followed him from fashion and curiosity or some equally low motive, but our Lord had pity upon them all. Jesus sees the needs of these people as being more important than his own temporary rest. Brothers and sisters, this is a critical thing to see in our Savior. What an important lesson for us to see. For his disciples then and for us now. Because Jesus saw people for what they truly needed, not as a burden. What we find is that the burden of these people became the burden of Jesus. ask you to think about that for a moment. With regards to compassion, do you truly see the burdens of others as your own? Experiences that they experience that you don't, burdens that they endure that you don't. As a Christian, marked by compassion, emulating the Savior, do you truly see the burdens of others as your own burden? Brothers and sisters, it is one thing for us to be a nice and polite people. But lots of unbelievers are nice and polite. Christ-like compassion goes deeper and is a more meaningful expression of what we're called to embrace as his people. 
When we lay aside our rights and privileges for the good of others and see their needs and hurts and struggles and with compassion lean into that, that is when we are most like Jesus. Compassion means that another's burdens or another's suffering becomes yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Brothers and sisters, the reason I bring this up is because I believe at times compassion, Christ-like compassion, is often an attribute that seems to be waning in the church today. The cancel culture has really done a lot of damage, even in the church. We can't even seem to be kind to people who may think differently than us without being questioned about our commitment to the gospel. I'm pretty sure that if Jesus lived today, he would not only be canceled by the culture, but he would be canceled sadly and grievously by many in the church. Being compassionate towards people, even those who reject the Bible and reject the gospel is a holy Christ-like thing to be commended that we see demonstrated here in this passage, Jesus knows, he knows the rest of chapter six, that many will turn and no longer follow him. And yet he sees them through the eyes of compassion and desires to meet their need, to lean into their burden as if it's his to seek to meet that need of the day. Church, that is what we are called to be and do as Christ followers in this world. Being nice and polite is good, but we are called to much more. We are called to compassion. He is a compassionate provider. We see also that he is a sovereign provider. Obviously, the magnitude of the need had been established. This isn't the first time we've seen a problem like this. You can go back to the Old Testament and find similar episodes, similar scenes you see in Exodus chapter 16 when Israel is grumbling about their, their food situation. You see it in 2 Kings chapter 4 when Elisha provides bread for 100 men with only 20 loaves of barley. So, so some similar threads back in the Old Testament. And now we see this. Hardly any money, hardly any food, and thousands of people to feed. The disciples have clearly revealed that the demand far outweighed the supply, at least in their immediate assessments. So the people are instructed to sit down in groups, Luke tells us. He takes the bread and gives thanks. We, we don't have recorded, we don't have the behind the scenes of how this happened. We're just told Jesus takes the food and he begins serving and the food is enough to provide for everyone there with leftovers. Not only that, they could eat as much as they wanted. Like this was an all-you-can-eat buffet. And they had leftovers.
See, the disciples were fixated on the problem and not the one who could provide the solution for the problem. There will often be times, brothers and sisters, when we are faced with overwhelming circumstances, not sure how we ought to respond. But it's in those moments that we have a simple choice to make. Will we look to the circumstances and conclude that all is lost, or we look to the circumstances and trust in a sovereign God who can give us what we need and more. I know I do this all the time, and I know that we do this as well. We, we often look at a situation, quickly do the math, and conclude not possible. You ever done that? And, and many times that makes sense, right? You, have enough, you only have so much money that you bring in for your budget, I want this, I don't have enough money for that, and therefore I make a decision. Not possible, unwise, don't do it, right? So there's, there's, I'm not saying that there's not a place for reason and logical thinking and planning and those kinds of things. But we will often look at a situation that maybe we, we sense God calling us to, and we will just say, I, I just don't see how that's going to work. I don't see how that's going to work. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, as the people had continued on their journey, the exodus through the wilderness, the Lord had been supplying daily their need for food through manna. And it wasn't long that the people began to complain about the manna. In Numbers 11, the people demanded meat. Give us meat to eat, they said. So Moses goes to the Lord with this request. Moses says, the people, Lord, among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? So, so Moses is bringing this request to the Lord, and, and he's saying, okay, they're asking for me. You've said to provide it, and then do we have enough? And the Lord says to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Is the Lord's hand shortened? Of course, the answer, is a rhetorical question, is of course not. Jesus proves here by supplying the need, feeding the thousands, the 5,000 plus. He proves that the Lord's hand is not shortened. He demonstrates through this sign and miracle here that he is the one that can provide all things because he is a sovereign provider. That's what makes him different than you or me. In many ways, he's different, but this is one of them. You're not sovereign. I'm not, I'm not sovereign. I can't create out of nothing. I can't supply miraculously. But Christ can. So we see this provision. A provision motivated by compassion. A, a provision demonstrated in his sovereignty. And a provision that results in satisfaction because he, number three, is a satisfying provider. After the food is served... He told his disciples to collect 
any leftover food, and they did, 12 baskets worth. Jesus shows through this example that not only can he provide and satisfy our needs, he can do so lavishly, with abundance. We saw that last week in the first sign, the first miracle as well. If you keep reading in verses 14 through 15, after the miracle, the crowd proclaimed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. You see that? Jesus provides, they take up all of the the leftovers, and when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's weird, isn't it? Sort of. They say, verse 14, this is the prophet that's come into the world. And you're thinking, yes, the whole Old Testament has been telling us about this. And they get it. But then they, by force, seek to make him king. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, yes, I'm your prophet. Make me king. He flees. That's the weird part. You're thinking, we could just wrap this up right here. But no, he doesn't. He flees. Why does he do that? He's just showed them compassion. He's just met their need in miraculous fashion. And now they say, you're the prophet that's coming to the world. And he flees. Why? Well, Jesus does flee, and guess what? They find him again. And when they find him again, Jesus actually asks them that very question. Or actually, they ask him that very question. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And look what Jesus says to them. Jesus answered, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, we read earlier, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who welcomes, or excuse me, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The reason Jesus leaves the crowds was because they were confused about who he was and what he had come to provide. He knew their hearts. He knew 
that they followed him because they saw him as the way or as a way to encounter yet another miracle or as someone who could do amazing things, but not the one who could truly satisfy their souls. They followed because they saw signs. Jesus says, you followed me, not just because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. You just want another miracle. And he explains to them that he is the bread, that he is the one that's come to be their nourishment, spiritually speaking, the one who could satisfy. Think about that, friends. Isn't that how Jesus is often pursued even today? Many will seek after Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. They see him as a means to an end. Jesus will give me a better job. Jesus will give me more money. Jesus will give me better health. And on and on you go. He's a means to your end. And while Jesus can provide in all of those areas and more, he is not our magical sidekick to give us all we think we want. He's showing us here in this text that he is the one who can satisfy, that he is the bread of life. And I know that all of us to some degree can be guilty of looking to other things, circumstances, people to try to find true satisfaction, as we said earlier. But the point of this text is this, you will never truly be satisfied unless you are satisfied in Christ. This miracle is an important miracle, obviously. It's the only one that's recorded in all four gospels. But it's an important lesson for us that shows our true need for Jesus. And when you look at all four gospel accounts and you kind of see them summarized together with some different emphases, depending on which gospel writer you're, you're reading, what you find in the end is two responses really to Jesus. Some believed and found him as the bread of life. Beyond even the 12, there are some in the crowd that trust Jesus. Maybe that's been you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's at the point in which you're at today. Maybe you've been realizing for some time that you need Christ. Or maybe for the first time today, you're you're seeing from this passage that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the, the bread of life, the one that can provide true hope. And friend, if that is you, I would just simply urge you to look to him, to find him as your sufficiency, as your savior, as the one who comes to give everlasting life. Some did believe. Others were at best intrigued. Wouldn't be a stretch even to say the majority The majority saw Jesus as a way to get a quick miracle. No real desire to follow Jesus, no real desire to long after Jesus, to find him as the sufficient savior of sinners, the one that can provide all our needs and more. 
No, many in the crowd that day left with their stomachs full, but their souls still empty. And what a tragic thing that would be, even for you today, to hear of the one that through these miracles, through these signs, demonstrates that he is the sufficiency, that he is our true supply from heaven. And to simply look from afar and say, well, that's intriguing, but not interested. Sure, I'm, I'm interested if he'll give me what I want. Friend, don't be like the masses who see Jesus as interesting, but nothing more. He is the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies our souls and our lives with himself. He's the greater Moses. He's the true manna from heaven. He's the sacrificial lamb that was slain for you. Trust in him. And fellow Christians, let us be faithful to follow after him in faith, in hope, and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is our compassionate, sovereign, satisfying provider, and that there is no one else like him in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for how you reveal yourself and your love and your care for this world. Lord, we know that there's so many things in this world that our hearts go after. And everything around us, Lord, everything out there in the world that we find on TV and on our smartphones, everything, God is just calling out for us to find satisfaction in everything but you. So Lord, we thank you this morning that we can pause, open your word, look at this miracle and see that no, only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus satisfies. And so Lord, as we reflect upon that truth this morning, it may be that we're here today and we're, we're trying to, to satisfy our lives with so much money, success, things. Father, as one put it, always eating but remaining famished, always drinking but never satisfied. God, forgive us. Forgive us where we have sought to find satisfaction in the things of this world and not in Christ. Help our hearts to be renewed and that our minds would be clarified today that the true source of satisfying joy in this life is found not in this life, not in this world, but in Jesus, who is sovereign over it. Lord, would you help us as your followers to reflect to the world where our satisfaction rests, Lord, that we would be reflective even of our Savior through compassion and through efforts to, to love the world God, in ways that often require 
risk, difficulty. Father, that our hope in Christ would fuel our love for Christ and our love for others in a way that we would not only long for our own satisfaction in him, but Lord, for their satisfaction to be in him as well. Father, for those that would be here today and maybe aren't following after Christ, maybe they this morning now see their need for him. Would you draw their hearts to you? Would you grant them faith, eyes to see and hope rooted in Jesus? Father, we thank you that you, through Christ, have given us all we need and more. It's in his name we pray. Amen.